You're listening to Living Faith, the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. for Sunday school and 10.45 a.m. for morning worship. Sunday evening services are at 6 p.m. On Wednesday, we meet at 6 p.m. for our weekly Bible study along with our immersive student and children's ministries. Find out more at www.fbcap.net or give us a call at 863-453-6681. You can email us at info at fbcap.net. We'd love to connect with you soon. This is part of our current Sunday evening sermon series. Amen. Um, open your Bibles to Psalm 23. We want to remember... All of our students that are going away to college, Christopher's going off to Palm Beach Atlantic on when? Tuesday, Thursday, so you got Wednesday, you can say bye-bye to him. Alyssa's going off to Palm Beach Atlantic also the Thursday too? Yep, Jeff's going back to Naval Academy Wednesday. Kristen Farless has already gone off to uh, Georgia State College on Friday. Um, anybody else leaving that I'm forgetting? Jacob's going back to UF. When does he go back? Thursday. So keep all of those. Uh, we should have a little prayer list for them. That'd be good. Dylan's already gone back to Boyce last week. So uh, pray for them. Uh, remember, as they're uh, sorting through lots of stuff, there's more to what they're going through in their little minds. They're little, sorry. They're big, grown-up minds. Uh, <laughs> other, other than their careers and all that stuff. There's uh, just lots of things that go on in those years and growing and learning and uh, finding out, you know, where God is placing them. Pray that they'd be connected to solid gospel preaching, Bible-believing churches, that they'd be built up in their faith even while they're at college. That can be a tumultuous time for one's faith and uh, values and worldview and all that. So just keep them in your prayers that God would sustain them and guide them. And uh, tonight as we look at Psalm 23... I kind of want to take those themes of uh, provision and guidance and God's leadership in our lives and kind of explore this through this psalm. It's one of those passages of scriptures, uh, scripture that can be easily lost in familiarity. Um, psalm 23, I mean, how many people know it by heart? How many people is it at least one portion of it or not all of it? Uh, someone's life verse or our theme Bible verse for our lives or how many times do we see it printed on an obituary or read at a funeral or memorized as a child? Not to mention Christian marketing, cross-stitched in your home maybe, posters up in our offices and all this wonderful stuff that we've done with the, with the verse and wonderful that we keep it in our minds and we keep it on the forefront of our thinking. But at the same time, over-familiarity with things can cause us just to kind of lose focus as to what the passage is actually telling us. It's wonderful to have the overall broad concept that God is our shepherd, that he's leading us, that he's guiding us. But what is it in the meat of this passage that David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, really wants us to lay hold of um, as believers? What is it the Holy Spirit wants us to learn as believers? Tonight, I think, just very simply, in the 23rd Psalm, we see God's providential, sovereign guidance, his provision, his protection, his deliverance for his people. Let's go ahead and read the psalm in its entirety, and then we'll pray, and then uh, we'll jump into it. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Holy Spirit, as we pause now, I ask that you would be our guide, that you would be our teacher. As we go through this psalm together, you might bring us into all truth so that we might look more and more like Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So sheep in the ancient Near East were more than just uh, animals you look at at a petting zoo. They were a precious commodity, whether it was for food or clothing, not to mention the sacrificial system, which relied heavily on sheep. Sheep were precious. People were measured in their wealth by their amount of livestock, including not only cows, but sheep, goats. They were measured in their wealth by their amount of land, their crops. The sheep were precious. The wealthy would own vast amounts of sheep, maybe multiple herds of sheep. And as we talked about in John chapter 10, we know these wealthy sheep owners would sometimes over the night or through the course of the week pay other people to watch their sheep, pay shepherds, pay under shepherds to keep care of their sheep. Or maybe at night the the sheep would go to the sheepfold and there would be a person there that was paid to protect them through the dangerous night in a cave so that that person would stand at the door and no predators or thieves or robbers would come in to steal the sheep. So sheep were precious. They were guarded because they were people's livelihood. I think God latches onto this imagery throughout the Old and the New Testaments to tell us something. Sheep need careful attention. Sheep need watchfulness. Sheep need someone to watch them who is alert. Sheep need guidance. Sheep need leadership. Sheep need protection. Sometimes sheep need deliverance. And I think throughout the Bible we see God pictured as a shepherd over his people who are oftentimes pictured as sheep for that very reason. Because God is the one who is ultimately in charge, whose sovereign hand guides and delivers and protects and saves his people who are kind of like wandering, lost, helpless, hopeless sheep at times. Not just Israel in the Old Testament, but think of us in the New Covenant. In Genesis 48, 15, Jacob, when he was blessing Joseph, his son, he says, God, who has been my shepherd to this day, Jacob, the father of Israel, the, um, in this benediction over his sons, he takes time to remind them of God's faithfulness in his own life. And in blessing Joseph, he reminds him, may you be blessed by God who has been my shepherd to this day. In Genesis 49, 24, God is called the shepherd, the rock of Israel. And several of the prophets when we were, we're seeing this time of the Lord's deliverance and there's judgment and there's destruction, but there's coming this time of deliverance and restoration and salvation, the, the prophets often picture it in terms of a shepherd. Isaiah says, in the day of the Lord, you know, when he comes to save his people, he will carry his flock. He will gather his lambs. He will carry them in his bosom and he will gently lead them. In Ezekiel chapter 34 
the prophet kind of contrasts two types of shepherds. There were the wicked, selfish shepherds of Israel. In Ezekiel's time, these would have been the priests and the religious leaders who were doing no good for the people, but were simply taking advantage of the people, letting the people squander themselves in sin while they take all of the wealth and all of the intake from the temple for themselves. And God says, I'm gonna punish those wicked shepherds and in time, I will send a shepherd that will actually care for my people. And then almost within a sentence, he reveals who that shepherd will be. He says, I myself will come as the shepherd for my people. And we of course know that when we come to the New Testament, namely John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am that good shepherd that was prophesied. I have come in place of these wicked, hypocritical religious leaders, I have come to actually care for my sheep, to provide for them and to even lay down my life for them. In 1 Peter chapter two, Peter says that through salvation, we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And in 1 Peter chapter five, in his benediction, he says that God and our savior Jesus are the great shepherd. And when the great shepherd appears, we'll be gathered to him. Do you think God wants to communicate something to us through this picture? I mean, from Genesis all the way here into the New Testament, we see this picture of people as helpless, hopeless sheep and God as the sovereign provider, protector, shepherd who is watching over his people and guiding his people and, prov- and protecting his people. I think God wants to communicate something very, very important to us. Number one, who we are. We're the sheep. We're the helpless, hopeless, utterly dependent, completely and absolutely dependent ones. And then we see God who pictures himself as our guide, our leader, our creator, our provider. That we depend on him for absolutely everything and that he himself is absolutely independent of everything else. Think of your salvation. The Bible says we like sheep had gone astray. We turned everyone to his own way. That was our status before Christ found us. Lost wandering, helpless. Paul says, dead in our sins and trespasses until the great shepherd came and saved us. Not just salvation though, but everything. Paul says in the book of Acts that in him, meaning in God, our shepherd, in him, our provider, in him, our creator, in him, we live and we move and we have our being. So that in God, We have everything that we absolutely need. This isn't just for believers, this is for the unbeliever too. The fact that any of us are breathing today as believers or unbelievers is on account of God's sovereign provision of breath. The fact that you woke up this morning, believer or unbeliever, is the sovereign protection of God through the night. The sovereign protection of God to wake you up and clothe you in your right mind. The fact that we have food and clothing and family and we experience love and beauty. Believers and unbelievers alike, all this comes from God who is the provider and the protector of all people in a general sense because everything comes from him and flows from him. He is the ultimate source and fountain of everything. Everything. Think about David thinking about this passage today. David, who as a young shepherd boy out in the field was called and anointed to be the king of Israel. 
who was protected from lions and bears, robbers and thieves, who himself was a shepherd. Think about David who faced Goliath, David who faced Saul. We know the David who ultimately faced himself in his sin with Bathsheba and in his repentance after that. And we think about that David saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Tonight, I want us to see three things from this passage. Number one, the Lord is our provider. Verses one through three. Number two, the Lord is our protector in verse four. And ultimately, the Lord is our savior, verses five through six. So in verse one, we see the Lord, our provider. From this shepherd king to his shepherd king, he confesses something out of the gate. The Lord is my shepherd. Again, remember who we are and who God is. And David, right from the start, confesses that. I am helpless, I am hopeless, I am a wandering sheep, and God alone is my shepherd. He alone is my guide. He alone is my protector. He alone is my provider. And then we have this weird phrase. To us, it sounds weird, at least to me growing up, and I shall not want. Because, you know, you memorize these things as kids, and it's like when you used to think the LMNOP was all one, one letter. You know, LMNOP, this is one letter. You start memorizing these things, and you just start spitting them out. Say Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. To me, as a child, it sounded like the God is the shepherd you don't want. And I was like, why is this a thing? Why are we memorizing this? This is awful. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, but I don't want him. It's just confusion of language, and for some reason, we still feel the need to say it that way. Maybe it's just familiarity. It means you, don't, you won't lack anything. When you're found wanting, it means you're found lacking in a certain area. And so we're confessing here, the Lord is my shepherd, and with the Lord is my shepherd, with God as my guide and my protector and my defender and my savior, I will lack Nothing. There is nothing that I will need that will not be provided for me since God, who is the creator, is my shepherd. Because God is my guide, I will lack nothing. There will be nothing that I need that is not provided for me by my heavenly father. And then we begin to tease this out. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. First of all, verse two, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He makes me. He causes me to lie down in green pastures. Green pastures for sheep, I mean, obvious times of rest, times of safety, where they could graze, where they could rest, where they could sleep without fear of a predator or thieves or robbers. Why? Because the shepherd was watching over them. In Isaiah chapter 14 and Isaiah chapter 17 and multiple times again throughout the prophets, we see this command that the people of Israel, if you're faithful to Yahweh, if you're faithful to the commandments, if you're faithful to his law, you have nothing to fear because God watches over you, this remnant of Israel in that time. Though judgment comes, though destruction comes, though terrible doom and destruction comes upon Israel and upon Judah to the remnant, the faithful of Israel, the prophets say you have nothing to fear. For God watches over you like a shepherd watches over sheep who are in the pasture. The reason the sheep have rest, the reason the sheep are able to sleep and rest and eat without fear of a predator, without fear of thieves or robbers, is because God himself is the one who watches over them. The shepherd watches over them and God watches over us. In Matthew chapter 10, in a similar passage to Matthew chapter 6, which we read, 
Jesus is about to send his disciples out on kind of their first evangelistic uh, missions opportunity. Okay, they're all going out to preach the gospel, and he's giving them some instruction. And he warns them, when you face persecution, because you will. When you face opposition, and you will. Do not fear. Jesus says your heavenly father knows when a sparrow falls. The smallest of the birds, one of the smallest. Your heavenly father knows the number of hairs on your head. Now we often quote that as um, just kind of a generic do not worry, do not be anxious. And certainly it has ramifications for that. But notice the context. Jesus is saying this to disciples who are about to go out into a dangerous world. He says a sheep among wolves. I'm sending you out, but don't worry. Not one sparrow falls that is not known by your heavenly father. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And he says, are you not more valuable than that? Are these sheep not valuable to their shepherd? So don't you think that you as a believer are more valuable to God than a sheep to a shepherd or just a sparrow to your heavenly father? Of course we are. And in John chapter 10, Jesus says this, I lay my life down for the sheep and I will have all that the father gives me and I will lose none of them. You see the watchfulness and the alertness of the shepherd, don't you? We don't have to fear, we can be at rest, we can be at peace, we can relax, we have our, our, our needs met by our faithful God and we can know that these things are true because the great shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus is looking out for us and not just in some physical temporal sense but spiritually as our heavenly high priest. Think about the doctrine of eternal security. The perseverance of the saints, or whatever you want to call it. Once saved, always saved. We sometimes tend to think of that doctrine as some kind of contractual obligation that God has to us because we did something in the past somewhere. Because we said this thing or did this thing or locked into this thing, and now we're once saved, always saved. But that doctrine is only true, and it only works because Jesus, who is our faithful shepherd continues to this day to watch over us and to protect us and to preserve us and to pray for us. I mean, even now, Jesus is at the right hand of the heavenly father interceding for you and for me as his precious sheep. And that's why he can say with absolute confidence and boldness, I will have all that you give me and I will not lose one of them. Not just because of some contractual obligation God has to us, but because our faithful shepherd watches over for us and protects us and provides for us. Even to this day, Jesus is praying for us, preserving our souls and our faith in him. Then we see he leads me beside still waters. Not that the waters are still. It's another one of those things where maybe a, a different translation might help us out a little bit. Actually, running water was the best water for drinking and for all that, you know, babbling brooks and springs and waterfalls and rivers. That's where you wanted to be, to drink. You didn't want stale, stagnant, unmoving water to drink. So the idea here is not that the waters are still, but that the sheep are still beside the waters. That these are waters of rest, waters of revitalization. Yes, waters of rehydration in a physical sense for these sheep as they're being kept alive, but refreshment, rest, more peace, more ease. The sheep are still and are at rest beside these waters. And I think the idea is one of satisfaction. 
that the need of these sheep is being met by their shepherds so that they're able to be at rest beside waters of plenty and in these green pastures of plenty and rest and safety. In fact, I think that's what he goes on to say in the beginning of verse three, he restores my soul. One of the study Bibles I was looking at said that this is a common Hebrew idiom, like a common turn of phrase that the the Hebrews would use, you restore my soul. And though it sounds kind of spiritual in nature, it's used in Lamentations chapter one, verse 11 and verse 19. And it's translated differently in English. You renew my strength. I think that's what's in view here for these sheep, letting me rest and feed in green pastures, leading me beside still waters to drink and find revitalization and refreshment. And through those things, for these sheep in a temporal physical sense, they're kept alive. Their strength is renewed. They're sustained, they're provided for. And so their strength is renewed. The same thing for us in these times of peace, in times of ease, in times of tranquility, beside the still waters or in these green pastures, trusting in the care and provision of our shepherd, our strength is renewed. We are revitalized in the inner man. In fact, Paul says that, that though the outward man is wasting away, the inward man is going from glory to glory to glory, being renewed in the likeness of Christ. So there's some obvious physical ramifications here for the sheep, but I think the spiritual ones far outweigh that. The Lord is the source of life because he's the creator. He's the source of everything, especially for his people. Tonight we sang Count Your Many Blessings and one of those songs we we sing and it's happy and it's clappy and we kind of sing our way through it, but think about it. Think, think about the Lord's faithfulness. Have you counted your blessings lately? Have you counted God's faithfulness and his provision lately? Bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits. Hasn't the Lord been good to you? Lord has been good to us, then why do you fret? Why do we worry? Again, in Matthew chapter six, we read it earlier. We have this promise that we shouldn't worry about what we eat or drink or wear. The sparrows are fed by their heavenly father. The grass and the lilies of the field are clothed by their heavenly father. Again, are you not more valuable than they are? Are you not worth more to God than a sheep is to its shepherd? Of course you are. You were bought with a very special price, not the blood of goats and lambs and sacrifices, but by the precious blood of Jesus. You're precious to God and he cares for you. He has been good to you in the past, then why do you fret and worry that he will be good to you in the future? Some of us need to be reminded of this this name of God tonight. When Abraham saw the ram trapped in the thicket, we remember that he confessed, the Lord provides Jehovah Jireh. Worry, anxiety, stress, turmoil, these things wash over us. 
circumstances we can't control, thoughts we can't control, emotions we can't control, whatever it is that washes over us. Maybe it's big things, maybe it's small things that seem big to us. We so often forget the provision of the Lord. And yet David here, facing sometimes insurmountable pressure, surely insurmountable stress and anxiety. I mean, people were actually wanting to kill him, you understand. And he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack absolutely nothing. He gives me peace. He gives me rest. He gives me revitalization. He renews my strength. Look here in verse 3, in the middle part. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Sounds very spiritual again, but I think if you have an ESV, you can look at the bottom and see the little footnote. He leads me in right paths. I mean, certainly the Lord does lead us in righteousness, but let's think about sheep for a minute. That the shepherd who is leading them to green pastures and still waters, he knows the way. He knows the best path. We're going to see in a minute, it might not be the easiest path. It might not always be the brightest path. But we can trust that in the hands of our sovereign, loving, caring God, it is the right path. Whatever my God ordains is right. So whether it's green pastures or still waters or whatever the Lord may lead us through, we can trust that he's leading us in paths of righteousness. Paths of rightness. So tonight... Do you long for those green pastures of security, provision? Do you need still waters of rest, revitalization? Do you need to be reminded that the Lord always leads us on right paths? Do you need reminded tonight that God is your source of strength and your vitality? Spiritually, physically, everything you need is provided by the Lord. You can rest assured here as David is trying to communicate to us that God is all of those things for us. And then you might ask the question, how can I know? How can I know that God will meet my needs? How can I know that my path is right in the Lord? How can I know that he will lead me beside still waters? How can I know that he will renew my strength? How can I know that I will lack nothing if I trust in him? Because tonight, believer, your deepest most urgent and pressing need has already been met by God in the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Your ultimate need is not clothing or places to live or what you will eat or drink or friendship or love or peace or belonging or whatever it is that the world seeks for in God. Your most urgent need from God is the forgiveness of your sins, the removal of your guilt so that you will not have to face his wrath on the day of judgment. That's what every single human being absolutely needs to the core of their being. And if you are in Christ tonight, God has already met that in him. And therefore, you can absolutely confess for all eternity, I have God as my shepherd through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, I lack nothing. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. There's the picture, the wandering sheep. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter, again from earlier, he said, we've wandered away like sheep. But now we've been returned to the shepherd of our souls. When we 
were wandering, when we were helpless, when we were hopeless, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. You remember the parable? Jesus said the shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one lost sheep. The hymn says, I was lost, but Jesus found me, found the sheep who went astray, threw his loving arms around me, drew me back into his way. Or maybe a more familiar one, I was sinking, you know, this one, deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters rescued me, now safe am I. Jesus is the great shepherd who says, I am the bread of life. I provide rivers of living water. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christ is our life. Christ is our provision. Christ is our everything. Have you found rest for your soul in him? Remember the context, though, of Matthew chapter 10, persecution, that there are trials coming. There is persecution coming, maybe even certain death coming for these disciples, for all they knew. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. So we shouldn't take these promises from God to mean that we will always be at ease, that we will always be safe in a physical, temporal sense. But in an overarching spiritual sense, nothing can happen to us outside of the sovereign control and hand of God. I mean, he couldn't have meant that for these 12 disciples. Uh, Nearly every one of them gave their lives for the gospel's sake in terrible ways. So we can't just claim like some you know, prosperity gospel that God wants the absolute best for us in a physical, temporal sense. That these green pastures and still waters always mean physical safety, physical provision, physical happiness even. But they go beyond that and they mean something far deeper. That even when Peter was being crucified, tradition says upside down, he was able to trust in the covenant goodness and faithfulness of God, his shepherd, and say, he's led me this far. How can I abandon him now? In fact, Polycarp, one of the earliest martyrs of the Christian church after the apostles, who was supposedly one of the disciples of the apostle John, was an old man when he was executed. And he was before the governor who was saying, You know, I could throw you to the wild animals, right? You know, I could burn you, right? And Polycarp says, burn me then. Bring on the fire, who cares? Do to me what you will, because the fires that you bring will burn for a minute, and then I will be with God for eternity. But the fires you face will be for eternity. And so he says, bring on the fire. What's the fire going to do except bring me into the arms of my heavenly father? And that's the way we should see these trials and these persecutions that come upon believers tonight. That this isn't a promise of temporal, physical happiness all the time. We have suffering in our congregation. Sickness, disease, emotional suffering, mental suffering. Things happen. Life is hard sometimes. And we shouldn't in those times doubt that God is the one who leads us into green pastures and beside still waters but that no matter where God is leading us, it is right. And then look at verse 3b. Why does he do all these things? For his name's sake. I think it's, it's crucial that David ends this little part of this psalm with that. Tells us everything we need to know. For his name's sake. 
This isn't ultimately about you. Your life isn't ultimately about you. All these things that are promised to us are not ultimately about you. We see here in no uncertain terms that God is in this for God. God is in this for his own glory. In Genesis chapter 22, 16, promising again to Abraham this covenant that he's made with him, God says, by my own name I have sworn. In Isaiah 45, 23, to the people of Israel, concerning his promises, God says, I have sworn by my own name. Unless we think this is some kind of flippant thing on behalf of God, we should remember how sacred the name of God is. In Exodus chapter 3, when God uh, proclaims his name to Moses out of the burning bush, I am that I am. Moses, you know, takes off his shoes. He's on holy ground. We think in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord in the temple, and he hears the angels saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That Isaiah comes into this state of just spiritual disintegration at the presence of God. The name of God being proclaimed is a holy, special, sacred thing. Think about the Ten Commandments. Commandment number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This means you shall not use it in a flippant, silly way. You shall not swear by the name of God unless you absolutely 100% mean that you're going to do what you're going to do. And in that case, Jesus says, you better just not even do that because let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do not take up the name of the Lord your God in vain. So what makes us think that God would take up his own name in vain? In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, kind of reflecting on that passage to Abraham, he says, because there was not a higher name by which God could swear, he swears by his own name to Abraham, to Isaiah. As he reveals himself through the old covenant, he's making these promises and he always says, by my name I have sworn, my name. You know why he's doing that? Because there's nothing else God can bank it on. There's absolutely nothing else in the universe that can hold the power and the certainty of God swearing by his own holy covenant name. Because by swearing by his name, he's signing his name to the line. It's my reputation on the line. It's my glory on the line. It's my name that's at stake here. And that should be of utmost comfort to us because when God's name and God's glory and God's reputation is on the line, we can take it to the bank that he's going to be 100% faithful all the way to do everything that he said he's going to do. That's good for us when God is for himself. Because if God was for anybody else but himself, the universe would fall into non-existence. Consequently, when you're saved, in Romans chapter 10, quoting from Joel chapter 2, Paul says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When you're baptized as a believer, you're baptized into the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is signifying something. That when you come to Christ in faith and you call on the name of the Lord, when you're baptized and you're baptized into the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are saying, I am part of this wonderful, great, everlasting covenant that God has made. That this is about his glory. I'm calling on his name. I'm being baptized into his authority. This is about his glory, not mine. We're confessing that I didn't do it. I couldn't do it. 
I contributed nothing to this whole process, like Jonathan Edwards says, except the sin that made it possible, the sin that made it absolutely necessary. That's all I brought into this equation. I was useless, I was helpless, I was dead, but God, in his grace, in his mercy, in his love, in his power, raised us up. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians chapter one, verses five through six. This isn't about you. It never was. It's not by you. It never was. It's about God and for God and through God and in God. And he's in this for himself. And this should not be a point of conflict for us or a point of contention. This should be a point of great comfort for us. Because if God is in this for God and God is the one who has done this from beginning to end, then God is the one who will finish it. And if God is not the one who has done this from beginning to end, then we cannot ever believe that God will absolutely finish it. But because God started it, God will end it. He is faithful to complete his promises. He says, this is my thing. My name is on the line. Everybody standing, clapping, rejoicing in the Lord. And then in verse four, the Lord is our protector. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Contrasted to the shady green pastures and the still waters of the first couple verses, this is kind of a contrast, isn't it? The valley of the shadow of death. Literally translated, the darkest valley. And I think it's interesting that this follows right on the heels of verse 3 when he says, you lead me in the right paths. Because the shepherd leading the sheep through right paths might not necessarily lead the sheep through a dark valley. Dark valleys are not good places. There are caverns. In caverns are thieves and robbers and predators. And the shepherd typically does not knowingly lead his sheep through these dark, cavernous, treacherous, perilous valleys. But it says here that God does. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. So we see the promise is not one of consistent temporal, physical happiness and pleasure and safety and peace. God will provide those times, but there will also be times of dark valleys, whether that's physical suffering or just hard times in life family problems, financial problems, planning problems, stress, anxiety, all the things that we suffer through in life, we can come to that and still say, this is the right path because God always leads me in right paths, even if it's through the dark valley. And the promise isn't that we will always be provided rest and peace and ease. The promise is that even in the dark valleys, you are with me. In Exodus chapter three, when Moses was frightened to go to Egypt, God says, don't be afraid, I will be with you. When the people of Israel are about to leave Sinai and go wandering in the wilderness and ultimately try to get to the promised land and facing the conquest, God says, my presence will go with you. In Isaiah 41, God promises, fear not, I am with you. 
When you pass through their waters, Isaiah 43, I will be with you. When you come to the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, it shall not burn you. When you come through the flame, it will not consume you. Why? What's the basis of this promise? How can God make such outlandish claims that no matter what we face, it will not overtake or consume or overwhelm us and we will not be forsaken or abandoned? How can God promise these things? Because of his presence, I will be with you. I will fear no evil. Literally, I will fear no calamity. I will fear no peril. There is no thief or robber or predator that can come against the Lord's sheep. And even if they do, it's at the sovereign will and command of God. Therefore, we have nothing to fear. What can they do to us? Jesus says, you don't need to fear men who can only kill your body. You should fear God who has control over your body and your soul. And when that persecution comes on you, which we probably will never face in this country, but when the disciples faced it, when the early church faced it, when any of us might face persecution for our faith or the enemy might come against us in some area of life, we can trust that God will carry me through this. And even if he doesn't, like Job says, whether he gives or whether he takes away, we'll bless his name. Even if you slay me, I will still praise you. Because Job says that even when I die, I know that in my flesh, I will see God. So death is nothing. Suffering is nothing. Sickness is nothing. This valley of dark shadows is only that, a valley of dark shadows. And it will come to an end. David says, I rest in the rod and the staff of my shepherd. Are these two things, are they one thing with two different uses? Who knows? Doesn't matter. Let's talk about the two words though. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Rod was used for protection. David in 1 Samuel chapter 17, talking to Saul, says, I used a rod to beat off lions and bears from my sheep. A rod is used for discipline. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but who loves him is delighted to discipline him. See, God is in the process of defending us from our enemies. God is in the business of actively defending us from the accusations of Satan. And with his anger, thwarting all the plans of the enemy that are not ordained by him. But in the same token, God can sometimes also issue us a good whack on the head with his rod of discipline. God defending us from our enemies and God defending us from the enemy within. Either way, the rod of God is our comfort as he defends us, as he protects us, as he disciplines us. That's why Hebrews 12, 6 says, whom he loves, he disciplines. There's comfort in the discipline of the Lord. That's why the author says, don't don't buck against God's discipline as a believer. When he brings you into a period of discipline and judgment, he's teaching you something. He's making you more like Jesus and he's doing this because he loves you. But then there's also the staff, a little less harsh than the rod. A staff was used for direction and guidance, sometimes deliverance. We don't know that this staff necessarily included the, the kind of the iconic crook of the shepherd's staff, but some shepherd's staff did include those and the, process, the whole thing about the crook was to grab sheep as they went astray, but a staff could do that just as well. Sheep just needed a gentle little prodding to get back into line. 
So we see God as simultaneously defending us from wild animals and thieves and robbers and predators and enemies, also whacking us back into shape sometimes, but then sometimes just gently nudging us back into the fold, leading us with a gentle, loving, kind, sensitive hand. So whether it's defense from external enemies or discipline from the enemy within ourselves or direction or guidance, there is comfort in knowing that God does not leave us to ourselves. What do you need from God tonight? Do you need defense? Protection? Do you need discipline? Protection from yourself? Do you need guidance? A little of two? A whole lot of all three? I think more often than not, we need a whole lot of all three, and I think that's why it's included here. Both your rod and your staff. They comfort me. And then verses five through six, we see God as our savior. And interestingly enough, the picture shifts from the Lord is our shepherd to the Lord is our host. From we as sheep to honored guests. And it's as if David has been painting kind of a picture or an illustration for us this whole time. And now he kind of lifts the veil off and says, okay, this is what it's all about. Whether he's leading you through quiet, gentle times in life or through the dark valleys of life, you can trust him. And here's why. Verse 5, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Whether in the quiet areas of rest or the dark valleys, the promise is I will be with you. And notice, notice verse 5. And again in Matthew chapter 10, it's not the absence of enemies that is the promise, but that the Lord will be with us and spreads a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Even as our enemies encompass about us and they encamp about us and Satan brings his accusations against us and hurls his flaming darts at us, even as that is happening, God is preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And the gospel says, come and sit and eat. Isn't the Lord's Supper such a wonderful picture of that? Satan hurls his accusations at us. And if we're honest, a lot of the times when Satan accuses us, if we're honest with ourselves, we'd have to say, you're right. I am a wicked, vile, terrible sinner. I have trespassed and transgressed God's law in the last second, the last minute, the last day, the last week. And yet God says, if you will examine yourselves and come worthy, knowing who he is and who you are, he says, come and eat. Sit at my table. It's not just taking a a cracker and some juice. That's not all it is. It's not just remembering, but there is fellowship with God and Christ in the table. And that's what this is all about. In the presence of my enemies, he spreads a banquet for us and says, come, you're not just my sheep. You're not even just my friends or honored guests, but you are my very children. Now come to my table and eat. He anoints my head with oil. Oil was a sign of rejoicing. It was a sign of calling. It was a sign of the Holy Spirit. It was a sign of honor. We think of Jesus in the house at Bethany when Mary anoints him with oil, showing honor and worship to him. And to think that we would come into God's presence and be invited not only to sit at his table, 
but that he would come to us as his honored guests and anoint us with sweet, fragrant oil. I think picturing his Holy Spirit, that he would pour out his goodness and his mercy on us. We're so unworthy of this. We're so unworthy to be called to the Lord's table, to be anointed as an honored guest. Listen, it's only because the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, was counted as a curse for us that we are able to be called to the table as chosen sons and daughters of God. The anointed one became a curse so that we who were cursed might become anointed. The fullness of God's goodness washes over us and fills our cup. And David says, my cup overflows. I can't even contain this blessing. I don't even know what this means. My cup is overflowing. Again, like oil, wine was very significant in ancient ancient Near East. It meant blessing. It brought joy. It was a sign of God's goodness and God's blessing and God's provision. And David says it's running over. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Again, drawing my mind to the Lord's Supper. Paul says, the cup of blessing which we receive. The cup of blessing which we receive. And again, the only reason we're able to receive a cup of blessing is because Jesus received a cup of curses. Remember his prayer in the garden? Father, take this cup from me. But we know he didn't. And we know that Jesus didn't refuse it, but he drained it dry as we sang tonight. That cup of God's wrath has been completely satisfied because Jesus took it all. So that we who should receive the cup of God's wrath now receive the cup of his blessing. And David says it overflows. Lastly, in verse 6, we see, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Literally, they'll pursue after me. God's covenant, steadfast love and faithfulness will chase me down until the day I die. But there is no escape from his covenant because after all, he's sworn by his own name. There's no getting away from his hand. There's no escaping from his goodness because he's promised it to us by his own sacred name. And David says, this loving, gentle, covenant kindness of God will chase me down the rest of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now what David has in mind isn't necessarily heaven. David's thinking about the temple. And we're reminded of this uh, over in Psalm 27. He says, one thing I seek, you know, one thing I desire, that I should dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's talking about the temple. He's saying, I want to be so close to the presence of God that I would just like to camp out in the Holy of Holies, at least in the holy place, at least maybe out in the court or maybe in the court of Gentiles. In fact, David says, I would be happy if I was just a doorkeeper at your house. I wanna be that close to God's manifest, glorious presence. That's an impossible dream for David. What though if that presence came to us? I think that's what John is saying in John chapter one. The word was with God, the word was God, and the word became flesh 
and tabernacled with us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So that Isaiah says this Messiah will be Emmanuel, God with us. And that Jesus says the Holy Spirit is with you, but he will soon be in you. And Peter says that we are like living stones in a temple for God's spirit, whereby he dwells in us. So that what David could only imagine in his wildest dreams of living in the very presence of God, we now experience in its cosmological fulfilled reality as the glory of God by his Holy Spirit, the presence of his son lives inside of us. And we behold Christ with unveiled faces and we see in him the radiance of the bright shining glory of God. And again, this doesn't end here, but even when we die, isn't that what Paul says that we shall forever be with the Lord and we shall see him as he is? Fanny Crosby, who was blind for most of her life after all of her life after an accident, that, um, a disease that injured her eyes, she said, I'm glad I was born blind. I'm glad I, I became blind because the next time I see, the very first thing I see will be the face of my Savior. And in one of my favorite hymns, she said so aptly as a blind lady, all the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Should I doubt his tender mercies who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, hereby faith in him to dwell. For I know whatever befalls me, Jesus doeth all things well. Unbeliever, you're a lost sheep wandering from the fold of God and the shepherd calls you tonight, come home. Do you hear? Will you heed it? Believer, tonight if you are in Christ, you lack nothing. Nothing that your soul needs for time and eternity. You lack nothing because the fulfillment of it, it is in Jesus. He is your provision, he is your protection, and he is your salvation. Can I ask you very simply, where are you tonight? Are you in those gentle pastures of peace and ease right now? Are you laying refreshed beside the still waters? Or are you in the valley of the shadow of death even now? in your spirit, in your soul, maybe even physically. Here's the good news. Wherever you are as a child of God tonight, it is the right path. And if you will lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, he will guide you, he will lead you, and he will establish your paths in righteousness. And here's the great news tonight. Very simple. I could have just started with this and ended with this, and y'all would have been happy, right? You can trust him. You can trust him because it's his name that's on the line. It's his glory that's at stake and he's not letting anything come against his name or his glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day and for this opportunity once again to hear your word. Thank you that you are our kind, good, loving savior. 
you are our shepherd, that you are our guide, our defender, our provider. Tonight, for whatever your children need that are in this place, and I ask that you would help them see that you're the provider of all of it. Whether they're in places of rest and peace and tranquility or they're in life's darkest valley, even right now, that you would let them feel the kind, gentle leadership of your staff. That you are here guiding us and leading us in the right paths for your namesake, for your glory. Send your Holy Spirit now to us to comfort us, to lead us, to guide us, to help us trust you, to help us forget not all your benefits. We ask all these things in Christ's name.